Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, astrologer Demetra George is joining me, and we're going to be talking about uh, the ancient myths associated with the planets and the gods and goddesses that came to be associated with those planets, um, and also how these names were originally established by the philosopher Plato and his students in the 4th century BCE. Uh, hey, Demetra, thanks for joining me. Nice. It's great to be back on the astrology podcast and talking ancient astrology with you. Yeah, ancient astrology and ancient myths, because the last episode we did together was on the Mesopotamian goddess Anana, who was connect yeah. connected with Venus. And we talked about how the myths associated with Venus were very relevant in terms of the meaning of that planet in astrology. And so here we're back again to talk about that in a broader sense through the lens of both the Greek as well as the Mesopotamian myths. Yes, and the whole study of um, cross-cultural myths and how different cultures often have the um, gods who carry similar attributes is a fascinating um, a study to untangle as to whether it comes through actual um, transmission of cultures interacting with another and sharing their knowledge or whether it comes possibly from a more Jungian concept of that the gods represent the basic archetypal um, forces or qualities, forces of the psyche within uh, the human being and that all cultures will have manifestations of um, similar gods with uh, similar attributes. And so to what extent it, the whole study falls between actual tangential transmission or something that exists more on a level of the collective unconscious is like a very rich area of study. Yeah, and it's an area of study that you've done, put a lot of your focus on over the course of your career, both in terms of mythology and in terms of astrology. And you had an even older connection, though, with myths in terms of how you grew up, right? Right. You know, both of my grandmothers were Greek and they formed part of my, I lived with both of them when I was young and uh, those were my bedtime stories. Okay. So yeah, that's a, you have a deep, like intimate connection with them then that sort of flows through your life is woven through your life in different ways. Um, well, so for the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus on the myths of the planets. And I wanted to just quickly set up an overview of the premise of our discussion which is that early in the Greek tradition, there weren't names for the planets. Like it didn't always exist in Greek Greek literature where there were names for these wandering stars. Right. It wasn't um, even clear that they had identified all of the planets as separate from the stars. It wasn't that it wasn't just that they hadn't given them their names, but it wasn't clear that they had picked them out as something different. Right. Whereas in the Mesopotamian tradition, they had a, a tradition that went back to like 2000 BCE, where they were really focused on the planets in both astronomy and astrology and were tracking and identified the planets and gave them specific names. Okay. So it wasn't until the time of Plato in the fourth century BCE that some authors decided to give the planets specific names based on the gods of Greek religion and mythology. 
So the names first appear in the works of scholars surrounding the Platonic Academy, which are philosophers such as Plato, Philip of Opus, who was a student of Plato, Eudoxus, who was also an associate of Plato, possibly a student, but a contemporary astronomer and philosopher who was very famous. And finally, also the names appear in the work of Aristotle, where he refers to them very occasionally and very briefly. So the names appear to have been chosen partially based on matching them to the older names that the Mesopotamians had given to the planets in, in their pantheon. And our goal here today is to talk about this process of naming the planets after the gods to compare the mythology of Mesopotamian and Greek myths and to discuss the impact this has on astrology, both historically as well as today and in practice and conceptualization and interpretation. So does that sound like good for pre what? premise? Yes. All right. Cool. Well, let's go back to Mesopotamia first, and let's start first with um, the Mesopotamian question where, as we talked about in the previous episode, in episode 412 on Anana and Venus retrogrades, as we just said, astrology started being recorded in Mesopotamia by 2000 BCE, where they eventually, which eventually led them to develop a complex mathematical astronomy so that they could track and predict the positions of the planets. Um, and the planets themselves were seen as visual representations of the gods in some way, right? Yes. Um, that in the Mesopotamian cosmology and their religion, there is a belief that the divine was imminent here in the world and manifesting through all of the different natural phenomena, including the sky. And so there seems to have been the um, belief that the planets were, and isn't it clear whether the planets were the gods themselves or they were one of the many appearances that the gods could take and that the planets became vehicles through which the gods could communicate their intentions um, for humanity. And by their changing appearances, by their shifting motions, by their disappearance, and when the planet um, was visually prominent, it was almost as if the belief that the god was saying hey like look up i'm here <laughs> i'm making an appearance i have something to tell you listen up and so then um this was a means by which um humanity could know what the gods wanted and their primary purpose was to serve the gods and our you know from our perspective as astrologers also looking back in history we know that sometimes when a prominent thing would happen in the sky such as an eclipse would take place they would note that something notable was happening on Earth, like that a king would die. And once they had seen those correlations happen enough over the span of years and centuries, um, you know, there was a real, it wasn't just like a belief or like a, you know, quote unquote primitive belief that like um, the planets or the, or the stars were gods that were representing or were sending messages. I think they had a real tangible reason for believing that because there was this persistent correlation between 
significant astronomical movements in the sky and events on Earth. Right. And we have, it was a science insofar as we have 2,000 years of records of recording celestial observations of celestial phenomena and terrestrial events that happened. And those were all inscribed on the um, clay tablets called cuneiform texts. And so we have a record of their um, scientific process by which they made these observations and then drew correlations and prognostications from all of the data which they had accumulated over several thousand years. Right. And that in of itself drove um, the development of mathematical astronomy. So it was like the astrology was the reason why you would be pushing to develop a better astronomy and develop better planetary models and things like that in order to be able to predict where the planets are going to be in the future or where they were in the past. Right. And that was a really big thing because the Mesopotamians had other methods of divination, the primary one being um, divination through the entrails of a sacrificed animal, especially livers. That was their primary means of divination, and astrology through celestial omens was secondary. Um, and often in the initial process, they would confirm an astrological forecast through doing a liver divination. Um, but then what they realized, and we're back to the issue of the, um, the astronomy and developing it, that they didn't have to now wait to do the ritual. They could predict ahead of time what the God was going to want. And that's where astrology like rose to become the queen of the sciences because um, humanity could know the God's intentions for the future, not wait until the moment to find out what was going on. Right. And then part of the purpose of that and the belief with that then was if a negative astrological omen appeared, they would try to do um, propitiation rituals or try to do things in order to avert it or in order to change the possible outcome. Yes, those are called numburbi rituals. And the underlying premise of that is that if a mortal is going to negotiate with a planetary god about the god's intention, then that implies a presupposition that there is some sort of consciousness or intelligence that works through the planet, because you can't negotiate with something that is inert and has no consciousness. So this is one of the um, main points of the belief in of the Babylonians in the sentience, either in the planet or moving through the planet, and supported the notion of the planets as deities. Because right. and that... if it's not alive and sentient in some way, how can you have a conversation about, hey, is this really what you want to do? Like, listen to my story, um, and maybe I can get you to change your mind by um, a transaction without um, um, interaction. Yeah, and, and that was, as you said earlier, part, situated in or part of a broader belief that nature and the gods were sending signs to humanity 
sort of constantly in different ways through different means, um, through different forms of divination, but eventually astrology rose and became like the preeminent form of divination by later in the Mes Mesopotamian tradition. Yes. The last things to mention with the Mesopotamian section are just that the myths or stories associated with the gods sometimes were tied in with the astronomical movements or features of that planet so that it seemed like there were certain certain pieces of astronomical wisdom or notions that were actually encoded in the myths in Mesopotamia. Last summer in the Anana episode, we explored how they had this entire narrative story, a myth about the goddess Anana um, descending into the underworld and then eventually re-emerging. Um, but within that myth, there was encoded the notion of Venus um, going retrograde and descending under the beams of the sun and then emerging in the other side of the sky eventually so that the, the narrative story had a parallel with an exact astronomical movement. Okay, so there were things like that in the myths, not just with Inanna, but other ones in the Mesopotamian tradition. So in this way, there's a union between astrology, mythology, science, and religion in the earlier Mesopotamian tradition that brings everything together rather than treating them as, as separate? Um, yes, yes, and I've often felt in the discussion that contemporary people have as to whether um, mythology is a valid means by which to understand the signification of the planets. I go back and mythology as if the planets are various deities. I go back to the very beginning of the origins of the Western tradition, where the planets were understood to be either the gods or the representatives of the gods conveying their information. That stands at the very beginning of the Western astrological tradition. Right. Yeah, that's something I am start have started to understand better over the years that I didn't understand as much for a long time, but I'm starting to grapple with and get a better sense of it, especially going back and looking at that Mesopotamian right. material with you last summer was really instructive in terms of that um, and how sometimes like maybe we should talk briefly about the notion of myth and what myth is and that sometimes myth early on while we have negative associations with it today like sometimes the term you know that's a myth means that that's just something that's made up or that's false that's not true um mythology in greek mythos means like story mm -hmm. and sometimes myths are stories that people developed in order to explain the workings of nature and the workings of the cosmos and sometimes they were putting things in a narrative structure of a story, but it was something that was supposed to be encoding deeper um, wisdom or deeper knowledge or even scientific knowledge um, in a way that, that worked in that ancient context. Yeah, it was easier to remember and therefore easier to pass on and um, preserve that understanding that people remember a story better than a list of scientific of data. And that myth, there's a views of myth is that they're memories, in some cases, memories of historical events that happen that then become encoded 
in the mythological story. Sometimes myths are associated with religious rituals, and that's another way of the um, ritual being carried forth. Um, sometimes they're explanations of natural phenomena. And so there were many um, different approaches to understanding the function that myths had in the um, passing on of the uh, knowledge of one culture to another. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And <clears throat> okay, so let's move on to the Greek tradition. We've talked about Mesopotamia. And one of the things that's important about Mesopotamia is they had developed like this very high level of mundane astrology where astrological omens relate to the state as the whole as a whole or to the king as the representative of the state by let's say 800 700 BCE and then eventually they developed natal astrology by 410 BCE which is when the earliest surviving birth chart dates to so that the concept of like looking at the alignment of the planets at the moment a person was born, or at least on the date a person was born, existed as a concept by 410 BCE. I want to say that the astrology in terms of the king or the monarch went back way earlier than the 8th century. It actually goes back to the second millennium. Right. The eclipse omen tablets that come from, I think, 2350 BC um, have to do with the king and uh, enemies of the king. So that tradition extends. There is a much larger gap of time between the astrology just for the welfare of the country and the king to that of the individual. Yeah, I wasn't saying it started then, but just that there was a culmination of that type of astrology around the time of the Assyrian Empire in the 8th and 7th century BCE, um, when they had this whole network of like 10 different colleges of astrologers around Mesopotamia sending in reports to the king. I always feel like that's like the high, the culmination in some ways of that approach to like what we call mundane or world astrology today. Yes. So world astrology then around 700 BCE, but then this new astrology is developed that's just natal astrology by, let's say, 400 BCE. Yeah. So um, what's important is that the Greeks um, started to become aware of astrology around this time. Um, and prior to this time, Greek astronomy was not very complex. Um, and also Greek astrology, we don't really have a lot of references to the Greeks being aware of or using astrology until around this point, around 400 BCE and after. And this period, actually, when they start to become aware of it, happens to coincide with um, the great philosophical schools, the classical philosophical schools of Plato and Aristotle and their successors from about like 400 BCE yeah. forward. Yes. Um, so, and, but the long, the upshot of all of that is like the Mesopotamians have the much oldest tradition of astrology. The Egyptians come in at some point later, and then the Greeks are of those three traditions seem to be the latest that developed astrology. 
so that um, this is our transition point to talk about the other main point of this episode, which is um, the question of when did the Greeks become aware of and start practicing astrology and start making major contributions to it especially. And part of the focal point for that um, is this old article that I went back and reread recently that I'd read many years ago. It was published in, I think, 1999, but it's titled The Evidence for Astrology in Classical Greece by Robin Waterfield, and it was published in Culture and Cosmos, um, Volume 3, Number 2, Autumn, Winter, 1999. And if you do a Google search for that title, it's actually been posted online, I think, by the Culture and Cosmos website itself. So Robin Waterfield goes through and he does a pretty good job of outlining the earliest evidence for when Greek authors start talking about astrology or something like astrology. And I've had kind of a love-hate relationship with this article over the years because I used to think he was stretching the evidence much further than was warranted. And also that I had attention myself because I knew that Hellenistic astrology, the more advanced form of astrology that we're all familiar with today that's really been practiced largely over the past 2,000 years, that most of the technical structure of that doesn't show up until the 2nd century BCE or the 1st century BCE, whereas um, Robin Waterfield was really pointing to a lot of evidence of, of awareness of astrology starting to originate 200 years before that, around 400 BCE around the philosophical school of Plato and Aristotle and their contemporaries. Um, but as I've been going back, especially recently, and doing some of these episodes I've done in the past couple of months involving Plato and the Timaeus and the Republic, um, I've been re-looking at all of that um, evidence, and I've been realizing that Robin Waterfield was, was right, and that um, there is an awareness of astrology that very quickly starts coming into um, focus in Greek writings around this time, around 400 BCE. Um, now, I don't think, I think it's important to say that I don't think it was that the more complex or advanced form of horoscopic astrology that deals with the full fourfold system of planets, signs, houses, and aspects, I don't think that had been fully developed yet. But I do think that the Greek philosophers um, became aware of the Mesopotamian treatment of the planets, of the signs of the zodiac, and probably even potentially the concept of natal astrology around this time, around 400 BCE. And that has some really interesting impact on the history of astrology, but also it has a very close and direct impact on the naming of the planets, yes. um, which, which they then contributed to. So there are um, stories of some of the early Greek philosophers um, having contact with the Babylonian and Egyptian cultures. Um, to what extent these stories can be uh, firmly documented is a different question, but they say that Thales, who was the first pre-Socratic philosopher, traveled to Babylon, where he engaged in conversations with the Chaldean priesthood, who were 
famed astrologers at that point. Um, we also have stories of the possibility of Plato having traveled to Egypt, which is not too much of a stretch. It's an easy boat trip, relatively easy boat trip from you know the port of Athens to um, the north coast of Egypt. It isn't unreasonable that someone could do that. And so they're based on at least, and some of the pre-Socratic, many of the pre-Socratic philosophers lived on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. There are all these Greek colonies there from at least uh, 1200, 1500 BC. And those are connected by land to the um, Syrian and Assyrian lands. And so I think that there was certainly a communication of trade and exchange of ideas that began in this earlier time period in the sixth and fifth and fourth centuries that the awareness of a tr divinatory tradition that was happening there began to filter into the uh, Greek intellectual um, culture world. Yeah, for sure. Both in terms of Egyptian culture and the interactions between Egypt and Greece, as well as with Mesopotamian culture, which um, the Mesopotamian culture at that time was dominated by the Persian Empire. And there were famously, you know, those famous wars between the Greeks and the Persians, and a lot of cultural interaction as a result of that, and as a result of the proximity of the Persian Empire sort of coming right up to the edge of Greece. Right, and the invasion of the Persians and the Battle of Xerxes um, in 490 BC, and that there were Persians that actually um, stayed in northern Greece and Thessaly for the course of um, a winter or more, where certain local Thessaly kings um, became allies of the Persians, and so that there was another place where um, some of that knowledge could have flowed in. And then Phoenicia uh, was also a major uh, shipping culture that was facilitating trade all over the Mediterranean. And that's where we got our Greek script from, was from the Phoenicians. So again, there were many avenues of the culture starting to intermingle and the communication of what the Mesopotamians had been doing for couple of millennia, at least 1,500 years at that point. Right. So um, here then, we, given that context, we have to introduce one of the things that's really important is just the center point of this, which is the philosophical school of Plato and the academy, um, that Plato, the philosopher Plato, um, was born a little earlier than 400 BCE, but what's interesting is he was born roughly around the same time as the first birth charts right. were popping popping up in Mesopotamia. Um, but in terms of Plato, um, let's situate him. So Plato was th is the most famous and influential philosopher, I think, of all time, um, certainly of antiquity, but even up into the present. There's like that mm -hmm. famous statement um, that's become a cliche at this point that like all Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato or, or something to that effect? Yes, I've heard, definitely heard that. Sure. So, so Plato was a famous philosopher. He wrote a series of works. 
And he also set up a school called the Academy in Athens, Greece, and um, had a number of students and a number of successors, including another famous astrologer, uh, another famous philosopher, Aristotle, who's probably like the second most famous philosopher of all time, was a student of Plato. Um, and there were a number of other um, philosophers and students of Plato that then went on and either carried on his work or um, developed their own ideas and thoughts as a sort of, um, you know, breaking away from Plato and going in different directions, but still in some way being influenced by their teacher. Yes. Um, so I actually have a, a list of that. I have a list of the students of Plato that I actually wanted to read because I think it might be helpful in like situating some of this. This quote is from um, Diogenes Laertius, who was a who wrote a famous like set of books that was like biographies of all of the eminent philosophers. And while some of it's um, kind of gossipy and fantastical in places and not treated as reliable, in other places he's drawing on sources that no longer exist that were legitimate and reliable. So it's often treated as something that's important that you have to take into account in different histories of philosophy. So um, one of the things that he gives at one point is a list of the students and successors of Plato. And he says, his disciples were the following, Spusippus of Athens, Xenocrates of Chalcedon, Aristotle of Stagria, Stagiria, Philippus, Philippus of Opus, so that's Philip yes. of, of Opus, who we're going to talk about a lot as one of his students. Um, and then he goes on and he just lists others. And there was like two at the end I wanted to mention briefly because I thought it was interesting. But he says, among them, there were two women, Lasthenia of Mantinea and Axiothea of Phileas, who is reported by Diarchus to have worn male clothing. So I thought that was really interesting that there were two women that were known to be students of Plato and that one of them was said to have worn male clothing. Right. Now that's fascinating. And for, in terms of a previous podcast we had done of ancient women astrologers and right. the scarcity of names of women, we thank you for that quote. And we have the names of two more women who come into the realm of um, the philosophic tradition, something that's really important models for women to, contemporary women to have. Right, exactly. Um, so there, though, we get one important figure, which is Philip of Opus. And um, I'm trying to think, the last thing with Plato is just we've talked about in the last couple of episodes on Proclus and then also the one on Lot's, that Plato wrote two very important and influential philosophical texts where he outlines some basic um, principles that would end up being very influential for later astrologers. And one of them was the Timaeus, which mm -hmm. posits um, this sort of creation myth or creation story where the cosmos itself is a living um, being that has the bo a body, which is the visible universe, but it also has a soul 
um, which animates things and and provides a sense of things being intelligent and um, and deliberate in some ways. The, the cosmos is alive and ensouled. We have a living, intelligent cosmos that we are a part of. Like that's such an important principle for many, many things and tangentially for astrology as well. Right. So and this is the idea. Back to the Babylonian understanding of the cosmos being alive and sentient and filled with some sort of sentient qualities. Right. So this is the origin of the concept of like the anima mundi or the world soul. And this is a quote from Plato where he says, this world of ours was made in truth by God as a living being endowed thanks to his providence with soul and intelligence. So that's one of the important takeaways from the Timaeus. And then there's another important dialogue that I talked about in the last episode on Proclus, which was the Republic, which contains the myth of Ur, where um, Plato again uses the, creates a narrative or a myth or a story talking about um, the cycle of reincarnation and the notion that um, he tells the story of each of the souls traveling on the outskirts of the universe before being reincarnated and that each of the souls is like on the outskirts of the cosmos and they have to cast lots and choose lives um, for what they're going what their life is going to be once they're born um, and then once they've chosen a life they have their choice ratified by the three fates um, who in Plato's dialogue are turning the wheels of the cosmos and right. especially planetary, the, the planetary whirls. They're sitting on the orbits of each of the planets spinning that. And it's by that means that they ratify the fate. And I thought that was like really such vivid imagery. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's hugely important, hugely crucial. And, and so, um, the fates become associated with the movements of the planets and the cosmos especially, and then each individual is born um, into a certain life that was chosen. And, and through that myth, you, you start getting these associations of like the planets with fate and with um, birth and with the life that a person leads, as well as choices that a person makes within life. And, you know, for the longest time, I always saw a lot of this as being something that later astrologers for sure were influenced by. And then it set up a cultural context where the longer those ideas had been around, the more that they influenced culture and eventually came to influence some of the conceptualizations of astrology and of, of Hellenistic astrology, especially two or three centuries later once, once it had been developed. Um, but now I'm starting to understand better that to the extent that like Greek culture was not an island in the sense of being completely independent and where it had no awareness of Mesopotamian or Egyptian culture, there's something striking about the fact that Plato is living at a time where the concept of natal astrology has just been developed and where some of his contemporaries like um, Theophrastus 
mentions natal astrology, especially he he dis, he's dismissive of it. He doesn't think it's a legitimate phenomenon. But through that reference, we know that the philosophers around this time were starting to become aware of the concept of natal astrology and that Plato himself may have been. Um, it's curious, like seeing some of these myths and just wondering if that played any role in the creation of some of this or or any influence whatsoever. And there's even um, one story about Plato at the end of his life receiving a Chaldean visitor from Mesopotamia. Um, and yeah, that, that Plato himself may have had contacts with like individual Mesopotamians is kind of interesting as well because in his later dialogues towards the end of his life, that's where we find some of these myths like the Timaeus, like the myth of Ur, and um, some of the things in the laws, which is his last work, which are also pointing in this direction. Right, and there is um, a, a whole piece that can be done on how the pre-Socratic philosophers and Plato and Aristotle laid a philosophic foundation for the reasonableness of natal astrology that by the time there was a greater influx of the techniques, the rationale, the rationale had already been established for why it might be a reasonable thing to move forward in developing. And so there's there's that as well. So Plato had the growing awareness of what was going on in Mesopotamia and through his work and the work of his students, but even the work of the, his uh, predecessors of the pre-Socratics, they were gradually laying in place those principles of a foundational understanding. Yeah, that's a great point. And even other principles that originated um, in the school of Plato and Aristotle and notions that all change and all movement that occurs in the world originates ultimately from the planets and from the celestial sphere and that it's transmitted down here to earth um, where everything is constantly changing and moving some of those ideas ended up becoming hugely influential and then were taken um, and, and sort of ran with by later astrologers in the subsequent centuries um, and we can kind of prove that in some ways where, for example, I found this quote that I shared in the last episode where um, a later philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, um, he has this quote, he says, they, and he's talking about the, the Chaldean astrologers, glorified the visible existence and had no conception of what was invisible and intelligible, but in exploring the order and numbers, in the sympathy between heaven and earth, they supposed that the cosmos itself was God. And that's really interesting because it kind of confirms that there were astrologers in later times, once Hellenistic astrology had been developed, that took some of Plato's ideas about the cosmos being a, a living entity or being God very seriously. And in fact, we find a text by Antiochus of Athens from probably the first or second century CE 
um, where at one point it introduces the Thema Mundi, which is supposed to be the mythical birth chart for the beginning of the cosmos or the birth of the cosmos. But Antiochus is unique because he actually calls the Thema Mundi the birth chart or the nativity of God. Um, so we're getting all these like ideas from Plato and Aristotle and these early philosophers that end up impacting astrology in very tangible ways in terms of their philosophy and, and conceptualization of it. Right. And that's uh, a, a fascinating process in and of itself because the Hellenistic texts aren't um, explicitly stating philosophic principles, but by understanding the philosophic principles that were in circulation at the time the texts were composed, one can see the how that philosophy permeated um, the expression of the astrology without explicitly being so. Right. Well, and, and and like most Hellenistic philosophy, we've lost all of the earliest source right. texts. And so what mainly survives is later technical manuals so that we have to infer what the philosophy was of the earlier authors. Um, but I do think there's like hints at what the earlier philosophy is that can be teased out and kind of reconstructed and, and things like that. And you definitely see the articulation of Stoic philosophy in Valens and Manilius, um, Ptolemy trying to correlate some of the Aristotelian natural philosophy into his presentation of the astrology. So those are some places where the philosophy does seep, clearly seeps through. Yeah, well, in the Stoic philosophy itself, which became so influential in Hellenistic astrology, in some ways was a continuation and modification of different elements of Platonism because the Stoics really took over that idea from Plato that the cosmos is a living entity and that the universe itself is sentient and intelligent and that what fate is, is it's the intelligent ordering of the sequence of events that occur on earth according to a divine plan because of that idea again which is just a continuation of the idea that the cosmos itself is a living mm -hmm. entity and is god in some sense mm -hmm. all right so all of this obviously it seems like it's taking it really far mm -hmm. afield but now we're going to bring it back to our focal point which is there's an important transition point that occurs with um, a student of Plato's named Philip of Opus. And Philip of Opus was said to be a student of Plato's, but also is said to be somebody who was like an assistant or secretary that helped to edit and publish Plato's final um, work, which is called The Laws. And The Laws ends like somewhat abruptly towards the end of it. So it's not clear if it was fully finished and there were also some pieces towards the middle that almost seemed like they needed a little extra editing, but we're told that Philip um, helped to publish the laws. And then eventually there's this other book called the Epinomis that was um, historically passed down as one of Plato's works, or at least of a work that was passed along with most of Plato's dialogues. And nowadays, most scholars unanimously agree that the Epinomis was actually a work that um, Philip wrote sometime after Plato's death, 
in order to um, carry on or in order to put his own take on some of Plato's final views and doctrines that he, at least in terms of how he understood them from the laws and from the Timaeus and the Republic. And what I'm learning and coming to a new understanding of is that the Epinomis is an extremely important document in showing the next step in the development of Platonism, which led to astrology and which then influenced um, where astrology would go over the next several hundred years, all, all the way until today. And there's many reasons for why that's true, um, that we can't get into all of it. But one of the most tangible ways that it's true and that it's important is that it was in the Epinomis that this is the first time that we see all seven of the planets giving given names that are associated with um, one of the ancient gods and goddesses in Greece, where all of a sudden the, the planets are being called after um, Venus is, is called Aphrodite. Mars is called Ares, um, Saturn is called uh, Kronos, and so on and so forth. Right, and really, now 25 years ago, as I started like my studies of classics and I dive into Greek philosophy, I've been trying to find the first place that all of the names of the planets were articulated all together in one spot uh, in a text that is extant, meaning that we currently have. And, uh, you know, we've gone back and forth on this conversation a lot over the years, but it was in the Epinomis by Philip that we finally see that first articulation. There's pieces where Plato mentions some of the names, but not the others. Aristotle mentioned some of the names, but not the others. Eudoxus was said to have mentioned some of the names, but we don't have that text. But it's in Philip's text that they're all there in one succinct paragraph. So um, that is uh, a, sort of a milestone in the um, connection of the planetary gods of Mesopotamian astrology coming in as planets being under the auspices of the various gods of the Greek mythology. Right. Well, and so Plato mentions only Mercury, which he calls the star of Hermes or the star sacred to Hermes. So already we see inklings of this starting with Plato in the Timaeus, but he doesn't mention, he doesn't give names for any of the other planets. And in fact, he he refers to them by like colors or very ambiguously by, by their movements. Um, but then in his student in Philip, we see the rest of the gods have been assigned to the planets very deliberately, which is interesting and important because it means that this is like sort of a program that was happening in the Platonic Academy, where we see it in Philip, and then we see it in Aristotle and Eudoxus potentially at the same time. But we see it um, the most clearly in Philip, and we also see a deliberateness in Philip where he's in his text, he's very conscious of this, and he's trying to justify 
the selection of names, but also he's acknowledging that um, that there was an influence from the Mesopotamian culture, and the he also says the Egyptian culture that is influencing um, the decision to pick these names. And that's another really important piece that there's a consciousness on Philip's part, who's an astronomer, because in the Epinomis, the primary part of it is to is to um, essentially encourage people to study astronomy and saying that astronomy in, in some ways is like the highest right. good or the highest subject of focus. Um, but there's a consciousness on Philip's part that there's some influence and that they're taking into account the earlier Mesopotamian gods in trying to deliberately sort out and pick which gods to assign to which planets. Because I guess that's the thing we should clarify here is it's not a given, even though we've it's, it's so ingrained in our culture over the past 2000 years, the names for the planets, it's not a given that certain gods had to be assigned to certain planets if if let's say somebody in the fourth century was doing it from scratch and if you didn't have those prior associations so this was part of some sort of conscious decision in some ways it seems like on the part of philip or other people in the platonic academy at this time um exactly and one of the explanations is that when the Greeks had encountered the beliefs of the Mesopotamian um, astrology and the names that the Babylonians and Assyrians had given to the planetary gods, they looked at their own mythology and they found gods that they felt most corresponded to the nature and stories of the Babylonian gods and so assigned that divinity to that planet based upon the Babylonian correspondences. Now, there are others, people who totally object to that explanation and saying that the qualities of the planets were totally derived from uh, what it, you call it from philosophical principles or constructs that didn't have anything to do with the deities or deity names. And so those are two very different approaches to understanding the problem. But I think that one of the things we want to do is to look at the qualities of the Babylonian gods and see if, in fact, they correspond to similar Greek gods and if there's a justification for that position. Right, because there's some scholars today, even in the past few years that I've read that talk about this issue, and they don't think that the Mesopotamian myths were the thing motivating why Philip and the other um, philosophers assigned specific gods to specific planets, but instead they think that there's more observational or or philosophical notions, like the the idea that Mercury is the fastest planet, so therefore they picked the god that was the fastest, which is the god Hermes, um, or um, yeah, or other reasons like that. That Venus is like the brightest mm -hmm. um, planet; it's the brightest star, and therefore they picked um, the goddess that was the most um, beautiful or like brilliant goddess, which is Aphrodite. 
So what we have in front of us and what we're going to do next then is check that thesis and see what we, what we need to establish and see is in looking at this from a mythological standpoint, do the Mesopotamian myths line up well enough with the Greek myths that it's clear that what Philip says is true, that they were making the connections based on an equivalence of Mesopotamian and Greek deities. So um, I want to take a little break, but then let's dive into that. Okay. Good. Okay. So we're back. Um, let's talk about the myths of the planets. And one of the things about this is there's certain um, instances when you're comparing the Mesopotamian myths with the Greek myths of the planets where there's a much clearer and much more compelling and obvious connection, whereas there's others where um, it's a little bit more complicated or where there's less points of contact. So we're going to go through each of them. And one of the things we need to do, you know, objectively is like as scholars, if people are looking at this is try to see um, how well the connections uh, match between the myths. And we're going to focus on the points of, of connection and unity. Um, but then we can also sometimes talk about points of, of disunity as well. All right. So you have a very helpful chapter, actually, or a very helpful little table um, that does this, that compares the myths in your book, um, Ancient Astrology, Volume 1, which I'd recommend everyone get a copy of on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Um, so you have a very useful table, and I'm going to show some of this as we talk, where you compare um, in the chapter on the planet, starting on page 51, the planet, the Mesopotamian or Babylonian myth, the Greek myth and God, and then finally you'll compare it with some significations given in Vadius Valens. So I'll be talking about that and referring to that and showing it on the screen for those watching the visual version of this as we go. Um, but why don't we start with first the two luminaries? And you had a point about that in terms of the comparison of the myths, right? Yes. Um, what I wanted to say is that the sun is the sun and the moon is the moon. And when the Babylonians talk about the nature of their sun god, Shamash, it, from the Greek standpoint, it isn't looking around to see which of their deities is most like the sun. The sun is the sun. The sun they knew was Helios and Apollo. So that there is a much more clear and direct association what we're going to explore is did the attributes and description that the Babylonians gave to Shamash, do they correspond to the Greek um, gods of the sun of Helios and Apollo? So with um, uh, Shamash, he was, um, was portrayed um, between two mountains, and he would in the morning, his uh, the scorpion men would open the gate of the mountain of the east, and he would emerge and then go across the sky in his chariot, and then by the evening descend um, through the gate in the western mountain and go into his subterranean course, and he was shown as rays emanating from his shoulders 
and from his head. And we see the parallel of this in the portrayals of Helios, the Greek sun god, who likewise had the rays coming out of him. And each morning he drove the chariot of the sun pulled by these horses across the sky and then descended. So that first of all, they both visualized their sun god in the same iconography, which of course is like quite obvious if you just look at the sun's motion through the skies. Okay. Um, the Shamash as a sun god, his qualities were of vigor and courage, which in some ways we associate that astrologically with our, our will, um, the force of our being. And that the sun, because he could see everything transversing the highest point of the sky, he could see everything that was going on. And he knew what was going on. He was both um, a protector of people and a judge because he could see what the wrongdoings the people were um, performing, but also a god of divination. And so the um, <clears throat> Shamash in the Babylonian mythology, through his priest called the Baru, was especially... I'm honored for revealing the secrets of the future and particularly through liver divination and the city that he was um, connected with. Um, let's see, I had in Sapar was especially um, a, a center of divination. So when you go to the Greek mythology, um, Helios, who is the sun god in the earlier pantheon um, of the Titans, then became um, merged with the Olympian god Apollo. And Apollo was the god of divination, and his major site was at Delphi, the um, main oracle site of the Greeks for a thousand years. And so we have both gods associated with gods of divination. And the sun god Shamash was also connected with justice. He was the Lord who, you know, meted out judge judgment. And in Greek myths, Apollo shows up in the trial of Orestes, who killed his mother because she killed his father who killed their daughter etc but and Orestes like fled the uh, furies who are hounding him and threw himself for mercy upon the altar of Apollo at Delphi and then Apollo said hey we have to have a trial where you're going to be judged and I'm going to be your lawyer and present your defense and so this a quality of um, being a god of justice was shared by both the Babylonian god Shamash and the Greek god Apollo, as well as the main qualities of being the god of divination. That's pretty. That's pretty good. That's pretty striking. Pretty nice correspondence then in terms of those two cultures. Mm -hmm. So, and then in terms of the actual astrological tradition later. Our primary source 
our, our best source for the significations or the meanings of the planets that's all in one place is the second century astrologer Vadius Valens. Um, and he, his very first chapter is a long list of the meaning of the planets. And Valens lists some significations that are actually relevant in terms of those gods, right? Yes. And, you know, and he has, it's the light of the mind. It's the organ of the perception of the soul. Um, he has judgment in there and crowns of office. So you could just show that passage in the diagram if you want and read out um, some of those. But this quality of, and the sun god was not only like the light of the sun, but the power of light moving through the sun. Okay. So in the significations you have, you've picked out some because it's like a larger paragraph. Like here's is from Riley's translation, like the full yeah. paragraph on the sun. Um, but in the ones you've picked out to focus on are that Valens says that the sun in astrology signifies the light of the mind, mm -hmm. organ of perception of the soul, kingly office, persons of high repute, judgment, crowns of office popular leadership, father, and height of fortune. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So were there any other points about that? I mean, it's interesting judgment coming up as like a recurring yeah. thing um, um, with, with these. Definitely. Um, <clears throat> and I think like the light of the mind and the organ of perception having to do with the qualities of light itself is something that one could expand. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, there's other, just in the larger paragraph, there's other ones like the ordinance of the gods mm -hmm. um, as one mm -hmm. judgment. This is like Valens's full list of, of significations. Reputation, father, master, friendship, notable personages, honors, high priesthoods. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, at least in fire and intellectual light. I mean, anyway. Yeah. So, but the but for our purposes, the main point is just in terms of, you know, if Philip is picking, uh, well, I guess Philip's not really. Because it's like they already had a name for the sun. So the, these right. are the ones that are going to be less controversial just because they're the Greeks and the Mesopotamians already had names. Right, because they're the visible planets that are visible and that impact our every day, every day and every night that we have direct correlations with. Got it. Okay. Right. Whereas the planets are something like you wouldn't necessarily... No, or distinguish them from the rest of the sky unless you knew, you know, you're looking. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um and I thought I thought divination was also connected at one point with the sun in balance. Um I'm having trouble finding my uh translation, but we'll yeah. come back to that. Shall we move on to the moon? Yes. Okay. Um, oh, do I don't know whether this is um, relevant or not, but I just saw it in um, my book. 
and that Helios had cults on the island of Kos, which is where Barossa set up his school of astrology, and on the island of Rhodes, that one of the seven wonders of the world was this big Colossus of Rhodes, which was Helios. And Rhodes was, I believe, one of the places of the transmission of the Babylonian astrology to the Greece mainland, seen as it sets right between the uh, coast of um, Phoenicia and the coast of Turkey. And this was the center of Hellenistic astronomy, was on the island of Rhodes. And so uh, I don't know, as I said, I don't know if this is a correlation, but since we're looking at the um, qualities of the Greek gods and their cult sites, for both reasons of the um, introduction of astrology to Greece and the center of Greek astronomical studies, Helios as the sun god, as the Babylonian Shamash is the one that presides over those islands. Got it. Okay. Um, and I just pulled up my translation, um, and I was right, because it's this one um, statement that Valens makes, it's dealings with the gods. And it's interesting because he puts that right next to judgment as one of the significations for the sun. But um, I have a little footnote pointing yeah. out that one of the that one of the translators um, yeah. infers that the dealings with the gods occur through oracles. Mm -hmm. So that was one that I wanted to point it out that just runs as a through line from the Mesopotamian tradition through the Greek um, mythological tradition and then into this astrological text as a specific signification? Yes. Okay. All right. So let's um, move on to the moon. Okay. So the moon, um, there are some differences between the Babylonian moon god that was a masculine or male divinity and the Greek um, goddess Selene, um, or Selene as it's pronounced, and she's also part of a trinity with Artemis and Hecate. So the first difference is the male-female association between um, the Babylonian god of the moon and the Greek god of the moon, and that the moon along with the sun and uh, Venus um, where the, in Babylonia, the three prominent astral deities that were depicted in all kinds of iconography, you see the um, sun with its rays, the crescent moon, and the eight-pointed star of Venus. So the moon was relatively high up in the pantheon. And the moon uh, god Sin was depicted in riding in a crescent-shaped boat that they called a bark, B-A-R-Q-U-E, across the evening sky and at a certain point in its monthly passage the crescent gave way to a full-blown crown that indicated the full moon and this is one thing that is aside interesting to me is that the um, Egyptian gods particularly Osiris were likewise depicted on these crescent-shaped barks traveling across the night sky. So you have an Egyptian Mesopotamian um, connection there. Maybe it's due to the crescent shape of the moon, the moon just rep itself. representing yeah. Yeah. like a boat. Yeah. yeah. 
and Sin was portrayed as a old wise man with a lapis lazuli beard, and that it was uh, felt that at the um, he was a enemy of evil doers, um, and there's myths that at the lunar eclipse he was surrounded by seven seven evil um, demons. And so we have a lot of the, again, I'm veering off the Greek, but a lot of the eclipse mythology that has to do with like the demons coming out to eat the sun and moon. We see that going, that kind of imagery and belief going back into the earliest level of the understanding of the moon god sin. Now, he corresponds to the measurement of time. Okay, that is obvious. The moon's monthly passage is a perfect calendar. And that he was thought to provide offspring or children and was an aid to pregnant and birthing mothers. And this is very similar to the moon goddess. And again, this is like fundamental because the 28 days of the moon's cycle corresponds to a woman's menstrual cycle. And so the moon obviously would be connected to the whole process of conception and um, being involved in the nurturing um, of the young and in the um, pregnancy and labor of women. As right. the menses yeah. are like, so there it isn't much, much of a stretch Sure. And he, as such, like the um, Greek moon, so significations of the moon, he was a symbol of growth and abundance. And you see that in the moon's phases starting off and the moon gets bigger and bigger. And then it has to do with you do elections and you want an election on the waxing moon where it is connected with the process of um, growth. Now, what some pieces of the moon god sin that are especially fascinating to me have to do that he had two main centers of worship. One was in Ur, which is in southern Mesopotamia. And um, Ur was one of the seats of the Chaldean priests. And his second place of worship was in Haran, which is in the very, very northern part of Mesopotamia. And the moon god was worshipped in both of those sites. And in the biblical story of Abraham, he is said to have been born in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then he traveled to Haran, where he connected with his wife, Sarah, and then they together went to Canaan and went on their journey. And the Hebrew texts say that it was Abraham who brought the science of astrology to the Jews. And so Abraham is considered to be one of the legendary founders, and he came from the city of the moon god, which was the Chaldean. So the moon becomes very interesting in, in that. And then many astrologers are 
aware of the importance of Haran, which in the um, late Hellenistic period, when astrology was starting to go underground due to the Christianity and the Romans, um, Haran became one of the outposts of the Hermetic tradition. And then there are all the star-worshipping temples where we have the astral hermetic religion being practiced for many centuries after the astrology had gone underground and closed down in um, the other part of the Mediterranean. And there in Haran, which was called the city of the moon god, they still had that association. Uh, in the develop, and I feel that Haran was um, one of the key places where the tradition of astral magic being um, merged with electional astrology fully was practiced and came together. And we see the importance of the moon in all kinds of electional work happening. So there's a level of the moon happening there. So I just wanted to share yeah. some of those stories of the moon god because it's so important to our larger context of our astrological history. But and we talked a, a little bit about Haran in the Proclus episode yeah. as well because of the pagan philosophers who were essentially Neoplatonic philosophers like packing up their bags and moving to that area um, in order to get away from from persecution or as a result of being exiled, but as a result of that carrying some of those um, pagan and platonic and astrological traditions. Yes. And right. And it said that Simplicis went there when the academy closed down later on. And there was the importation of the platonic astrology went, that went into the um, went into the Iran and the surrounding areas that then became part of, with Tibet Ben Kura, the tradition that moved over into Baghdad and influenced Arabic astrology. So that there's a direct line of Iran stands at the crossroads of those um, cultures. And then later. Yeah, and and Simplicius, Simplicius and them being some of the last of the line of those later Neoplatonists who were all integrating astrology or even practicing astrology to some extent in their practice like Proclus was for sure an, an astrologer but then even you know Porphyry was incorporating it to some extent Iamblichus mentions it um it's striking how many of the later neoplatonists were talking about and dealing with astrology to some extent yes so and... it's like the very tail end of the platonic tradition it's like things sort of come full circle in a way compared to where they started at the beginning of the Platonic tradition with Plato and the early inklings of like astrology or something like it potentially starting to come into consciousness. Mm -hmm. And um, I just found it fascinating that it was the Babylonian moon god Sin whose sight held such an important piece of all of that history. For sure, yeah. Right, from and the very beginning, all the way through to the very end. Sin was one of the oldest of the gods of the pantheon. Yeah, and it was especially associated with, it was like Sin was the most, the most important yeah. god in Mesopotamia and was also associated with 
the measurement of time, um, as well as with wisdom. With wisdom and with uh, a birth, childbirth. And so okay. we see that, we definitely see the theme of childbirth spill over into the goddesses of the Greek goddesses of the moon. And the Greek moon goddesses are um, a trinity of Artemis of the new moon, Selene or Selene of the full moon, and Hecate of the waning dark moon, and portraying women in their three phases as maiden, mother, and crone, or as maidens, and then um, uh, the three phases of the moon and the three stages of a woman's life. So, as I said, this is where there's the, in some ways, the greatest difference between the moon god and the moon goddesses, but they both presided over the same themes of the calendar and of um, childbirthing cycles. And okay. Artemis was said to have, you know, been one of her roles was as the midwife, um, bringing children in. That she and Apollo were twins, and Apollo, the sun god, and she was born first easily, and then she assisted um, her mother's labor with the birth of Apollo. Mm, okay. So this is an interesting, though, um, sort of discontinuity, at least between the myths of the traditions where we have like a male god in the Mesopotamian tradition, but we have all um, female gods associated right. with the moon in, in the Greek tradition. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, they preside over the same um, significations of the calendar and um, pregnancy and childbirth. Sure. Of, yeah. The growth of all things yeah that makes sense um it's just interesting in terms of then that setting the precedent that still held you know now two thousand years later in terms of the tendency to whatever extent astrologers um engender or try to associate genders with planets still of associating the moon with with women or the mother or what have you versus um to whatever extent it was like a male deity in the Mesopotamian tradition, that sometimes these choices that were made at that point impact things or 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 can send things in slightly different directions. Yeah, I th I think so. And it wasn't as if the Greeks like made up a new moon goddess. They this was their goddess of the moon that they had pre-existing for a long time before their exposure to Mesopotamian astrology and before perhaps trying to correlate it. These were the deities that were already in the Greek pantheon. Got it. So can we say then, obviously we have, there's commonalities between those two cultures, but then can we say then to the extent that the Greeks treated the moon more as a feminine deity rather than a masculine one, that that sort of feminine feminization of the moon then has impacted the Western astrological tradition in terms of our interpretation of it, to whatever extent at least the mythology or what have you has played a role in influencing the astrological tradition? Um, yes, and I think that it's like it's undeniable that the 28 days of the moon cycle corresponds directly to the physiology 
women's reproductive phys physiology. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's the definitely other. Right. It's the, the determinant in conception and pregnancy and labor. Yeah. There's definitely other symbolic and um, empirical or conceptual reasons why we could make arguments for why the moon's connected with women. And like, that's a really good one that's, you know, pretty straightforward in terms of that. Right. So as I said, yeah, that th this is where there seems to be the, I guess we're going to say the least correlation, but simply because one is a male and the other is a female, but they're not unconnected in that they both presided over the same significations that have to do with the astronomy of the moon herself and the physiology of human bodies. Yeah, that's a good continuity there. Um, also worth mentioning here, even though we're not dealing with it for the most part, but in the earlier Egyptian culture, Thoth, the god of wisdom, was originally associated with the moon as well. Mm -hmm. And he was connected with the calendar. Is the moon right. time and being with time? Calendar. Okay, cool. All right. So, and then there's a few um, significations in balance that we're going to mention. Yeah. Okay. So, the significations you highlight in your book is Valens says that the moon is the reflection of solar light and it represents life, the body, mother, conception, queen wanderings, legal marriage, housekeeping, property, gathering of crowds, home, ships, receipts, and expenditures. Mm -hmm. All right, sounds good. Um, anything else to mention about the moon? Uh, not at the moment. I think we've got five more to get on with. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. Um, there's that. All right. So moving on to the next one. Originally, we were sort of talking about and debating whether we should go through from like the ones that match up the, hmm. the most impressively to the ones that are like least connected, or if we should just go through a, a more standard order of like Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus. And we decided to go through in this order just for the sake of being able to show this um, visual representation that you have from your book. All right, so let's move on to Mercury. And Mercury is one of the ones where the connection, I think, is the most obvious and most compelling, I think, right? Right. I mean, we'll find that they all um, are very strong from this point on. Um, so Mercury in um, the Babylonian mythology was the son of Marduk, and Marduk was equivalent to Jupiter, which we'll get to. And Marduk was the king of the gods. And Nabu was his son um, and is often described as the crown prince. And that gave the Babylonian god Nabu part of his status of being the crown prince of the leader of all the gods. 
and that he his name um, meant the announcer. And our god Mercury is known as the god of communications. Nabu was the um, god of scribes. Writing was said to have invented writing itself and was associated with literacy, the ability to read and write, and hence with um, wisdom through having access to that knowledge. And Mercury, likewise, is known as the god of learning, of education, of literacy. And one of the important things about the Babylonian god Nabu is that when his father Marduk became king of the gods, he took on the um, power of determining the fates or the destinies of men. And it was Nabu who inscribed or wrote down individual destinies upon the tablets of fate. And so he also has um, that incredible um, status. And the Greek god Hermes, which was who's connected to Nabu, um, likewise, as I said before, was the god of learning and wisdom. And Nabu, they said, not only like uh, wrote down the fates, but he had the power of being able to increase or decrease the days of a person's life. And so he had some share of his father Marduk's power of determining those destinies. So that became, that became a little bit interesting to me. Now, the one part that was like most exciting to discover was that um, Nabu's uh, site of worship was in um, Borsippa, and I don't know, I'd sent you the map of the Babylonian cities. We don't need to show it now, but Borsippa is where later the Tower of Babel was said to have been erected in the oh, wow. biblical literature. And the Tower of Babel was like all of these people speaking all of these different languages. And of course, Nabu slash Mercury is the god of speech and of language and literacy. And that Borsippa also became the site of one of the main ziggurats, which are these pyramid-shaped monumental structures in Babylonia. And Nabu's ziggurat in his cult city of Borsippa had seven levels representing the seven planets, and that it was all um, encased in lapis lazuli, shining blue stone. It went like, what was it, like 70 meters high, which is like really tall. And it was felt that at the very top of the ziggurats were astronomical observatories. And this is where the astrologer priests went to do their celestial observations of communing with the gods. And so the biggest and grandest of these was that of Nabu. And in the Greek mythology, Mercury is connected with um, math, 
with astronomy and being one of the so-called inventors of astrology. And certainly as Hermes like then goes over into the Egyptian culture of Hermes Trismegistus, which is the amalgamation of Hermes and Toth, you have Hermes as the fountainhead of Hellenistic astrology, alchemy, and magic. So we have a continuity here between all three cultures of Nabu, Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus, and Mercury as being connected with um, language, learning, astronomy, and astrology. Yeah, that's really um, consistent, and that's a really great connection there. Um, so in, in Valen, some of the significations you have picked out um, are that Mercury mm -hmm. signifies letters, education of children, commerce, disputation, speech, brothers, youth, theft, bestower of intellectual and practical wisdom, augurs, interpreter of dreams, lawyers, orators, philosophers, temple builders, and searchers of the sky. Right. And in the Hellenistic literature, Mercury particularly is the one signifying astrologers. Yeah, right. Um, it's funny that you have some of the um, the trickster type significations as well um, come up with Mercury, um, which is kind of interesting. And I also thought about like the story of Hermes and the the Lear and and um, walking backwards to cover his tracks because it almost seems like a, a sort of astronomical implication there in terms of Mercury frequently turning retrograde. Right. It was. It's, they said that after he was born, like he was born at dawn, and then by midday he was up and out of his cradle and decided to play a trick on his brother Apollo. Um, the sun god and went and stole his cattle and then to um disguise it he made these uh shoes out of webbed reeds or whatever and put them on and walk backwards so if like you're trying to track his tracks they would go in the opposite direction which is a whole thing of retrograde motion and that by um evening he was back in this cradle and then um, the next day or two, and Apollo discovers his cattle has been stolen. He says, all I know is that brand new brother of mine that was just born. And he hightails it over to the cave where Mercury's in his cradle. And Mercury goes, bah, 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 I'm just like a baby. <laughs> I didn't do it. And so there's a cute scene where Apollo hauls baby Hermes off and um, brings it to Zeus and it's two brothers squabbling like he took away my toys and um, Zeus is just thinks it's the funniest thing um, that his younger son has like so much like um, spunk that he would do that and he picks him up on his lap he says okay boys now be friends and Mercury like you picked up this turtle and made this in instrument like give it to Apollo and apologize and be good brothers. So there's a, and because Mercury and the sun, their cycle with one another is so intimately connected and obvious, like three times a year they're doing this dance in mythology. 
in the Greek mythology, you see this connection between them um, as uh, becoming close brothers and Mercury's backward motion as being part of their story of how they got there. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know what the date is or like how early that myth is, that specific story associated with Hermes yeah. is, but it seems like that's like a story like the Mesopotamian ones that encodes almost an astronomical um, cycle or myth in it, just because it's interesting that the story involves Apollo, the sun god, and Hermes, which is associated with Mercury, and that Mercury is constantly just like three times over the course of the year, you know, slowing down, stationing retrograde, retrograding behind the sun or retrograding under the beams of the sun, at least, and then eventually emerging again, but it's walking backwards, which is literally walking backwards is what retrograde meant in the Greek astrological tradition, if you interpret the word literally. So there's just something about that that seems pretty um, connected and compelling. Yeah, exactly. The, the motion of Mercury is so linked with the myth. And as you said, yeah, when was that? When is the earliest um, version of that myth would be um, an interesting thing to start tracking down and that one could. Um, there's a book, I don't see it so much in circulation anymore by Gantz, G-A-N-T-Z. I think it's Timothy Gantz where he records some of the earliest of the Greek myths and their sources. And that would be one place I would go hunting for that evidence. For sure. And, you know, we've spoken just quickly that very few of the ancient Greek sources have all of these narratives all together in one place you'll find just fragments of the different stories and different works of um, literature on vase paintings or poetry. Um, but it's almost as if it's based on an assumption that everyone knows the story and you're just picking out certain pieces of it to incorporate in a play that you're writing or a philosophic thing that you're developing. Um, and it isn't until the... Um, early centuries CE, um, like the library of Apollodorus, that some of these fragments are put together in a continuous narrative of which text that we actually have. So you can't, like going to look for that whole story in the earliest literature I'm saying is um, challenging that you would find it as such, but you can find certain pieces of it in various places and so just for people who want to do that research to be aware of that right yeah that's really important and some point some point that i meant to make and i guess we should make it now so it's not lost by the time we get to the end but just we're looking at this and we're trying to do two things on the one hand we're seeing how um the how well Philip and the Platonist connected the myths that they chose to assign to certain planet that they the names that they chose um, for certain planets with the Mesopotamian equivalents that they had assigned to their planets. But then, and then we're seeing how this sometimes carries through into the astrological tradition. But the mythology wasn't the only factor that was being considered for the significations in Valens. There's like a whole 
um, variety of different conceptual and astronomical and also just like archetypal things that were also motivating this because part of the premise of the myths and the use of mythology and astrology is they hint at an overarching, um, almost transcendent, but not entirely concept of what Mercury represents as an archetype. Mm -hmm. And then that you see different elements of that archetype filtering through in either different cultures through their myths or through the astrology and the way that that planet manifests itself. Um, but there's some like broader point there that we're I think we're supposed to be supposed to make about that and how we're connecting some of this. Yeah. And I mean we're doing two things. I'm telling the myths of both of the gods and the just because like I'm a myth teller, but we're also seeing is there correlation between them? And if Philip or whoever had this planet called Nabu from Babylonian culture, and I'm trying to see, do we have any god who is anything like Nabu? Um, Hermes is an obvious one to land upon with both of their connections um, having to do with writing, literacy, education, and communication. Right. Oh, yeah. And and that's the one, interestingly, that's the one that Plato does mention, which therefore could be Plato's own connection, because we don't know if he got it from somebody else. We have no evidence for that, or if this was part of a program within the Platonic Academy to pick names of the gods and assign them to planets once they started becoming familiar with the planets and advanced astronomy. Um but also there's some broader point about the Platonists were very much against nominalism. Like they they thought that words and meanings had um, value. And I think they were very deliberate in their word choices for things. And there's some like side point where I think that may have been part of the motivating factor here for picking the names of gods in addition to the earlier Mesopotamian precedent, where when you give a name to something, that name can represent or can invoke like a wide variety of different meanings and um, implications so that sometimes it's important to be very deliberate about language and i and i feel like there's something there some subset some sub point there that's relevant for this um when we were preparing for this last night i ended up reading plato's dialogue cratylus and that was all about the names that we give things and if they're the appropriate, it, should we rightly call all these things by these particular names? So he totally develops that notion in that particular dialogue. Right. Yeah, I think that's important here. Okay. Um, last thing about Hermes. This isn't your list, but in my in the full translation of Valens for Mercury, there's three in a row that I think are important for that myth we just told about Hermes and Apollo, where Valens says Hermes that Mercury signifies youth, play, and theft, <laughs> as well as brotherhood. <laughs> you see that right. here up there, yeah, yeah, br brothers, yeah. Um, so it's like there's you know, other significations sometimes yeah. that are relevant here, but it, that's another one where I think, you know, is that coming from symbolically, like Mercury's 
movements or their astronomical things or from empirical considerations or you know to what extent is the myth um itself influencing that interpretation in Valens so that when somebody like Valens mentions that they have the idea of that myth of you know Hermes being such a trickster and like like um you know making the leer and like tricking Apollo and retracing his steps and stealing like the the tortoise or what have you like to what extent for a, a person who speaks Greek from the second century um is this range of things invoked range of ideas invoked and implicit versus to what extent are these just like abstract significations and concepts in astrology and i think there's a ambiguity there but the reality is it's probably both um and i think that for me that's actually an important realization because for the longest time i took more of a hardline approach that it's like it's not the mythology at all they're just deriving the significations astrologically from conceptual reasons and from astronomical reasons or things that fundamentally go back to astronomical movements that are being interpreted symbolically. But um, I realize now as I get older that, you know, you can't separate the culture in which the astrology is practiced and the stories and myths and beliefs associated with some of these things from their astrological interpretation to some extent. And I think that's obviously, you know, position you've always had and, and has run through your work consistently um, that you've always, always said and promoted. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, one thing that occurred to me as you were reading out Valen's significations, he has a list of significations, but what we're left with now in the 21st century with Mercury is writing and communication. Right. We've right. lost. Right. Lost. Some of these others may, in fact, have been things that Valens came up with, but what has survived and sustained through the 2000 years is going back to the fundamental qualities of Nabu and Hermes that had to do with these themes of being a scribe of language, of writing and communicating. Okay. Well, yeah. And I mean, if yeah. I've always thought if that's the fundamental meaning, it also may go back fundamentally to an astronomical point, which is that the sun is like the center of the solar system and it represents wisdom and like knowledge and the intellect and the mind. But Mercury is the very first planet that comes after the sun and that acts as like a, a gatekeeper or as a go-between in a sense between the sun and all of the rest of the planets and the rest of the solar system. And in that way, you can understand maybe if you take that astronomical point that is true, how we could interpret that symbolically then that Mercury represents the messenger or the go-between. Right, the one who's of, running around communicating the basic wisdom of the sun through its quick motion. Right. Right. But then this is this is a little sticky point. But at that time they hadn't they sort of understood the sun, but and they put it in the center, but they didn't put it closest to Mercury. The sun was between um Mars and Jupiter. Mm -hmm. uh, no. Between Jupiter between Mars and Venus. 
between Mars and the Earth, but in the order of the planets from the Sun, with the Sun holding the central position, but it, but it wasn't at the very center of the solar system. Right. I mean, that's true. I guess I was just thinking of yeah. why why does Mercury still represent right. communication in a way that's true become true universally and as you said that that's still the one signification that everybody agrees on for mercury and i would say because ultimately um the reality of the place that it occupies in the solar system okay. and that that piece of it was true and has always been true as a result of that reality regardless of what like astronomical models we had in the past um, but yeah, but then we get into a separate question of like, how was that originally established and everything else, but they weren't seeing Mercury's proximity to the sun in the way that we understand that to be the case. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that can bring us into a weird discussion of like doing to intuit things that are true, even though the premises upon which we based our conclusion are not true. I mean, yeah, I think that happens. That's something in like the history of science sometimes where somebody can make a assumption or an inference about something for the wrong reasons, but still be true. And then later you can find out that the premise of why that person got to that conclusion was wrong, but that the conclusion that they had gotten to was still accurate. So... Yeah, I think about that That sometimes. Maybe that's where we're at. Okay, let's keep going. Um, you and I can like get off on whole tangents for hours and days if we let ourselves. All right. Um, that's good for Mercury. Um, yeah. Let's move on to Venus, which is another one where just the through line across the traditions is very clear and very explicit. Yeah, you know, we... Um... The Sumerians who predated the Babylonians, uh, it was the goddess Inanna. And then when the Babylonians took over the Sumerian culture, they um, gave the name of Ishtar to Inanna. But Inanna Ishtar had been associated with the planet Venus from even pre-literate times because she was represented in iconography and on the gates to her city at Eric by the eight-pointed star, which speaks to Venus's minor period of eight years of making that return, planetary period return cycle. So someone had figured that out before writing was invented based on the dating of sculptural reliefs um, signifying Venus by the eight-pointed star next to the sun and moon. I forgot about that. So, And that's something we talked about extensively in the, the Inanna episode. That's really important because, again, that means some of the fundamental myths are going back to astronomical observations, that they're observing astronomy, and then they're encoding some of the astronomy and the myths but then to the extent that the astronomy is then sometimes being interpreted symbolically, that's getting encoded in the myths as well. Um, so I know, I know that's not always happening in every myth, but with some of the celestial myths, that does seem like an important component. Um, then 
um, we have the Venus tablets of Amasaduqua. And they're like circa 1700 BC. I think that's the right date within the century. And that's pretty early on in the old Babylonian period. And there you have the observations of the planet Venus as morning and evening star with their appearances and disappearances being used to track um, agricultural productivity and times of um, famine of the land and different war thing, different events with wars. And so that there's a very close correlation of the planet Venus being written down in the old Babylonian period. And I tried to track this down last night and I got stumped by not actually knowing Akkadian. But in the translations of those tablets, they use the word Venus. But I know in the cuneiform texts, they did not use the word Venus, <laughs> I mm. guarantee you. And my belief is, is that they may, that they use the word Ishtar. Okay. Okay. But I can't point to some cuneiform tablet and establish that authoritatively. But for sure, I can, I know that Venus was not the word that was being um, transliterated into Akkadian in 1700 BC. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so then you have, there's a clear identification there between the planet and the name of a deity. And we talked about Inanna's descent to the under, and, and Venus was known as the morning star, as the goddess of war who rode into battle. And she was especially venerated as such in the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was a very militaristic empire. But she was more worshipped as the goddess of love in her Sumerian capital of Eric, E-R-E-C-H, or Uruk, U-R-U-K, depending on how you spell it. And there she was the goddess of love and the um, patron of the um, sacred prostitutes or court courtesians. And I just want to point out that Aphrodite and the Greek pantheon had her city at Corinth was known as being um, a city of sacred prostitution. So we have those two motifs spanning um, long period of time in different cultures as being associated with this goddess. And we spoke about Inanna's descent to the underworld um, to attend the funeral of her brother-in-law, Nurgle, who's the planet Mars, and we'll get to Mars, and then her being hung up and then Oh, the gods come and get her release and she comes out, out as the morning star. Then when we have the um, mythology of Ishtar, Ishtar's lover is named Tammuz. And he's killed and he goes to the underworld and Ishtar goes um, down there demanding his release and threatening to open the gates of the underworld and let everyone out if the um, Arishkakal doesn't give him back. And there is um, a compromise where he has to spend half of the time in the underworld 
and he can come back the other half of the time with Ishtar. In the same way that Ninana's descent, her husband Demutsi spent half the time in the underworld, and then the other half he could return and they would celebrate the sacred marriage and the cycle would start again. Then in the story of Aphrodite, she has a lover whose name is Adonis, and he is killed by the wild boar, and he goes to the underworld, and Aphrodite wants him back, and she goes down there, and Persephone, who's the queen of the underworld, says, no, you can't have him. Like, I want him for myself because he's so beautiful, and they get into a fight, and then finally, Zeus is called into compromise. It's okay, girls, like half and half, you know, each of you get a map of each year. So we have a continuity of the goddess associated with the planet Venus going into the underworld to um, interact with the issues associated with their lover and a compromise has to be affected for the same amount of time. And then finally in Greece, you have, you know, Persephone herself who goes to the underworld and a deal is made for half and half. So in that, we see a direct linkage of the Sumerian to the Babylonian to the uh, Phoenician Greek myths of these goddesses who are connected with that planet. Okay, <clears throat> that's really good. Um, that makes sense. So showing yeah. these. So one of the points you brought up, though, is because we're talking about Inanna and slash Ishtar um, one of the things that that reminded me of that we should say is we're often treating the Mesopotamian tradition, which was like an entire 2000 year period before Hellenistic astrology as if it's monolithic, but it wasn't. And like a more careful treatment would separate out the different cultures and their different conceptualizations of these gods and what their what their continuity or discontinuity was. Like, for example, um, the earlier um, version of the Venus god in Mesopotamia was called Anana, but then there was another culture that became prominent, and their version of that was Ishtar. And while there was some overlap, there were also some major differences. Mm -hmm. And then you have in the Phoenician culture Astarte, who became the Phoenician goddess of love. And... Um, the Phoenicians carried her worship across the Mediterranean, particularly to Cyprus, which is right off the Phoenician coast, where it's one of the birthplaces of Aphrodite in the Greek pantheon. Okay. Um, but that's this is important because it leads to one of the only few discontinuities with Venus, which, which is the earlier Sumerian culture that treated, they called Venus Anana, treated it more as a goddess of love, whereas the later Assyrian culture, which called Venus Ishtar, treated um, Venus more as a goddess of war, especially? Um, that was more emphasized. It was more emphasized, okay. More emphasized. Because the same myth of like the descent of the goddess to the underworld yeah. exists with both Anana and Ishtar. Yes. So there's still continuity and stuff. Continuity. Um, and then... And You'll see different images of uh, Venus and some of the Assyrian time periods she's shown as um, riding into battle and standing on lions. 
and in some of the um, uh, depictions from Uric. And a lot of times these aren't identified when you're looking at the images and books and stuff, but she's holding her breasts and adorned with jewelry. Um, and uh, they say as goddess of love, she um, roused desire in all of the um, animals and living creatures. And there's a portrayal by Homer of Aphrodite um, going up on Mount Ida in Turkey, like meeting her lover um, and cheesies. And as she races up the mountain, all of the animals start making, you know, having sex with one another, that she's that principle of the arousing of desire and that she had um, many lovers. And we see that with Aphrodite in the Greek culture, that she had many, many lovers. They tried to marry her off to Hephaestus, but she wouldn't have anything to do with that. And then when I get to Mars, um, Nurgle, um, their, her relationship with Nurgle was most important. And we'll see that coming back into the descent myth. That okay. Nurgle or Mars, who is her brother-in-law and married to her sister, Arishkagal, the queen of the underworld, and supposedly in the Inanna myth, Initially, she was going to attend his funeral. Later on, the mythology of Nurgle gets encompassed into, well, is um, Mars as the god of war, and he becomes Aphrodite's main um, passionate affair. Okay, got it. Um, well, and you mentioned something here in the table of the difference between evening star and morning star. And it's just interesting to me because when this gets passed off, it's like in, in the Mesopotamian tradition, we might have more of a notion of there being two sides to Venus, of there being this like love amorous side, and then there being a potentially like more warlike side to some extent. Um but when it's when we're doing just Aphrodite, Aphrodite gets flattened into more of a just the love side of things. Right. Although it's interesting that in the Hellenistic tradition, we do have um, the difference between morning versus evening stars, and that Venus was thought to be sort of masculinized, they would say, as a morning star, but feminized as an evening star, so that perhaps some of that earlier notion of those two sides of Venus from the Mesopotamian tradition is carried through in the astrological tradition through that distinction? Yeah. And um, at this point, I want to say that some of the earliest work on Venus Inanna um, came from Ronnie Dreyer, who wrote the book Venus, the Goddess and the Planet um, back in the early 1990s. And Ronnie is now in the process of updating and revising that book. So I want to encourage people to watch for that publication. And I'm sure Ronnie will get into a lot of the more specific details around this issue that we're talking around right now. Right. Okay. Yeah. I read that when we were preparing for our yeah. Anana episode last year, and it was really good. All right. So um, is there anything else? Should we talk about the significations Valens gives? Yeah, you can. Sure. Okay. So um, in the ones you picked out, Valens mm -hmm. says that Venus signifies desire, erotic love, arts, gold jewelry, festivities, 
precious stones, music, friendships, acquisition of belongings, weddings, painting, reconciliations for the good. And, you know, when Venus came out each year as the evening star from behind her superior conjunction time when she was mourning, Mm -hmm. uh, they celebrated the sacred marriage her reunion with Demutzi, who had come back from the underworld. And there was all this music and dancing and feasting and lovemaking in the streets going on. And so Evening Star, Venus was especially connected with festivities and music. Okay. And weddings, um, sacred marriage, right? Yeah, that actually comes up in some of Valens' significations, yeah. where he's like, Venus's desire and love and signifies mother and nurse. But then later he says, um, the wearing of gold ornaments, the wearing of crowns, merriment, friendships, companionship, um, pleasant sounds, music making, sweet singing. It just uh, it's very reminiscent of some of what you're talking about with those festivals. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on then uh, to Mars. Okay. And um, the planet we know as Mars was known as Nurgle to the Babylonians. And he, um, his name in Akkadian meant to scorch, which is like hot fire scorches. And our Mars is like known as, you know, the hottest of the planets. The red planet and right. in um the mesopotamian mythology he um was associated with the underworld and the god of the dead um and he decided the fates of the dead and he was also a god of war um who in death came by being inflicted upon you as opposed to just dying of disease or old age, um, of plague, of disease. He accompanied rulers on campaigns. And he also was said guaranteed peace due to his fearsome nature. Um, now, he was known in um, Sumerian as Era, E-R-R-A or I-R-R-A. You may sometimes see it spelled. And there are three um, different stories of how he came to be the king of the underworld um, that were, and I actually, I don't have how they were layered chronologically. Now, based on a discussion, like there's an impetus to do that. Um, but one was that it was Urishkagal, Inanna's sister, who was the queen of the underworld, um, who demanded that Nurgle be sent there to pay respects to someone who had died. And he was forced to descend, and he was told, like, avoid all of these dangers. But then there was one he didn't avoid, which was having sex with her. And then the story goes... Um, after six days, he decided to leave, and while she was asleep, he um, left, and Arishkakel demanded that the other gods convince him to return 
and threatened to open up the gates of the underworld if she didn't get her way. It seems like that was the ultimate threat that all threat that many of the gods had. If you don't do what I want, I'm going to open the gates of the underworld and all the dead are going to arise. Then the um, second story was that initially um, Arishkagal planned to kill Nurgle, but he turned against her and she suggested marriage so that they could share the rule. And then the third version is that he led a company of evil spirits into the underworld, forcing the queen Arishkagal to marry him and appoint him sovereign of her kingdom as his price. So here we have three different versions of how he came to assume that role. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is we like jump over to the Greek side is that we don't see this myth, variations of this myth explicit with Ares, the Greek name for Mars, but we do see it with Hades or Pluto. Right. That's what I was just thinking. It's right. interesting. Like somebody made a choice there not to focus on the underworld part, but to focus on the war part mm -hmm. or, or not somebody. I mean, um, our friend Philip of Opus, evidently, or those surrounding the Platonic Academy, they picked Ares here, the Greek god Ares, the god of war to match with Nurgle rather than you could see this is where there could have been a divergence where they could have picked Hades or Pluto as the name. Right, because one of the theories around Pluto's abduction of Persephone was that Zeus, when he became king, gave Pluto the underworld as his share of the rule. Um, but that Pluto couldn't claim it because Demeter and Persephone already were the goddesses of the underworld. And so the only way that Pluto could get it was to abduct Persephone and by having had sex with her, she became honor-bound to have to marry him. And therefore, that's how he assumed his rulership. And, you know, Pluto and Mars share rulership of Scorpio so that there's a way in which that which is connected with the underworld. So we see the conflation of those two um, mythological gods archetypally and astrologically. So I thought that that was interesting, but I just want to, before we leave him, um, I want to um, say that in another one of his um, myths um, from Nineveh, it said he um, was waging war against Babylon, which was ruled by Marduk. And he kept escalating his acts of aggression. And the myth depicts the horrors of war focused upon humanity, the reign of terror, of destruction, and um, him like totally rolling over the voices of moderation and cosmic order. And it wasn't until he heard the other gods acknowledging the power of his rage that he rescinded his war of terror upon the city. And then um, use that 
as a way to keep peace by the threat of the might of his power and destruction, which is sort of, you know, our whole nuclear thing. We have all these nuclear bombs, which are like, and missiles and warheads, which are a symbol of the destructive power of Mars and or Pluto. And we're going to, this is how we're going to keep peace by our threat that will totally vanquish you if you upset um, our rule and dominion. And so this sort of like goes back to the Mars-Pluto energy, which is interesting because that like um, peaked out earlier this week, yeah, with Mars conjoining Pluto. Um, so this energy here of Mars and its associations with Pluto, I feel are relevant to understanding um, the nature of Mars. And then, you know, in the Greek mythology, Mars was known for being the god of murder and terror and his lust for blood and destruction. And everyone hated him, even his father. Um, Zeus hated Mars. And here in the story, we have Nurgle trying to conquer Marduk, who's Jupiter, uh, Jupiter or Zeus. So we have that rivalry between the two of them in both the cultures and just like the stories of his violence and bloodthirstiness being totally common in both cultures. Right. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then we see that very clearly show up in the significations of Mars in the astrological tradition and Valens. Um, some of the significations you have picked out from yeah. Valens, where Valens says Mars signifies violence, war, adultery, plundering, anger, combat, enemies, bloodshed, iron, military generals, warriors, ruination of women, loss, banishment, Inter sexual intercourse, breaches of friends, murder, imprisonment. Right. So it, that seemed like a pretty obvious connection between the war and terror aspect of Nurgle with the significations of the Greek RAs or Mars. And as you pointed out, them like not pulling up his connection with the queen of the underworld. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it makes sense. And that's really interesting. Um, so we can see some, sometimes how the selection of certain myths pushes the interpretation in certain directions, but then there's still other significations that are drawn out sometimes from connected archetypes but that show up in the astrological tradition either through empirical means or through um through a connection of like parallel archetypes and and related sub archetypes yeah all right um let's move on to our last two really quick here so and, jupiter okay jupiter was um uh, known as marduk and um, sometimes also called Bel Marduk. And his story um, comes from the Enuma Elish, which is called the Epic of Creation. And um, scholarship dates that to the old Babylonian period, 
but recently some scholars are hedging on that and they think it might be a little bit later, but there's continues to be enough scholarly dispute that it's not clear how relatively early or late this um, epic is. And we have the story of near the beginning of creation, um, there's um, these two gods, Apsu, who's the primordial ocean, and Tiamat, who represents the tumultuous seas. And Tiamat is represented as a serpent-skinned dragon who gives birth to all of these monsters and other creatures. And at a certain point, some of the newer gods um, decide to have a revolt. And um, when she hears about it, she decides to wage war on them so that there's a battle between an older generation of gods and a newer generation of gods. And Marduk is then entreated by the new gods to please come to their defense. And he's known for his um, uh, strength. And he says, like, we want you to lead us in killing um, Tiamat. And he says, well, I could, but I want you to promise me two things. One is that um, when I win, you'll give me supreme authority over all the gods. I want to be the first in the pantheon of new rulers. And I want you to give me the tablets of fate or the tablets of destiny to decide. So these are his two um, conditions. And then he goes into um, a battle with her and he slaughters her. And in her serpent dragon shape, he takes half of her and puts it up like as the dome or the vault of the heavens. And he takes the other half of her and creates the firmament of the earth. And here we have a very interesting story relating to the nodes as being the dragon's head and the dragon's tail. Um, and I'll leave that story for other people to extrapolate, but because I don't want to go there, but I just want to point that out. So we have the we have the battle of the new gods against the old gods, and the old gods are represented by a dragon serpent-like creature in the Mesopotamian myths. If we go over to the Greek myths, we have um, Zeus or Jupiter representing a newer generation of Olympian gods who are waging war against the older generation represented by the Titans. And their battle goes on for a long time, but at a certain point, Gaia, the old mother goddess, corresponding loosely to Tiamat, sends her serpent, the Typhaeus, to do battle with Zeus. And so he has a whole battle with the serpent dragon figure. And then when he finally slays her, then this is when he proclaims his victory to become king of the new order of gods. Wow. And, okay. 
And in the end, Marduk then ruled over a council of seven gods and um, a, a council of gods. Zeus is the ruling deity presiding over the council of Olympian gods. Marduk is portrayed as a storm god associated with lightning and thunder and winds and rain. And Zeus was a storm god holding the thunderbolt and associated with lightning. And whenever there were big storms happening, his wife Hera, who was also connected with the air of the heavens, they were saying, oh, Zeus and Hera having a big fight up in the heavens, hence like a whole lightning and thunderstorm happening. So whenever you saw storms or even um, rains um, happening, it was like a manifestation of Zeus um, occurring. Uh, so we have three main points of of correspondence here of the fight against the earlier order of gods to achieve supremacy and the dragon serpent motif presiding being the head god presiding over the council and the um can, and the decreers of fate like zeus decided the fates of mortals and he had pretty much leeway except the time of death and that was the one thing he couldn't supersede the uh, decrees of the Moirai, and there are both uh, storm gods. Uh, so we have that. And then in the Enuma Elish, I think which is important, is that um, when his victory is proclaimed, he receives the 50 names of the previous god Enlil, who then like falls into obscurity and Zeus overtakes him. And then he um, organizes the world. Zeus brought order back out of chaos once he won. Um, Marduk constructs dwelling places for the great gods in the sky, installs the stars as their images, fixes the length of the year, orders the month according to the moon's changes, and regulates the course of the heavenly bodies. And then he created humanity. This is Marduk, the rivers, vegetation, and animals. So we have a creation story. Marduk's father was Ea, the god of waters. And Marduk also represented a god of the fertility of the waters flowing through the land and increasing um, the, its productivity and vegetation through the water element. And so one of the things that I don't quite know what to do with, but that it was um, Marduk who was responsible for setting into place a sort of the articulation of an astral theology of setting the gods in the sky and fixing their homes as the stations of the constellations and regulating the year and the month. And I wonder, just staying within the Babylonian mythology, if as astrology came to assume an increasing prominence as the main mode of divination, if it was the ascendancy of Marduk that was um, happening at the same time, and that's how those two got 
woven into the myths. I don't know, but this is something I just started thinking about um, in the last 24 hours. Hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, okay, so I think, um, oh, and because he was a god of um, fertility and particularly the fertilizing action of waters, um, out making plants grow and such. I was wondering if that had anything to do with Jupiter's exaltation and the sign of cancer, if there was any th thread that could be woven in there. Hmm. Yeah, Again. you you had mentioned something about in the Mesopotamian tradition, um, I think, it, or one of the traditions, like Mars being fighting with Jupiter um, when we were talking about yes. Mars just now, and it made me think yeah. of the exaltations and Mars being opposite Jupiter. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what where to go with that or what to take that. I mean, it's also interesting again with that difference between which gods you pick. That Jupiter would be like one of the highest gods versus Mars being the god of the underworld in mm -hmm. the earlier Mesopotamian tradition, yeah. and in a an opposition there in some sense. Mm -hmm. But I think that the correlations between Marduk and um, Zeus are very, very striking of essentially having the same story. Yeah, this is probably one of the closest yeah. sort of matchups here. Yes. I think Jupiter is. Mm -hmm. um, and then that follows through very closely into the astrological meaning of Jupiter pretty well in Valens as well, I think, right? Uh, yeah. So... It some of the significations you give for Valens are the begetting of children, erotic love, alliances, knowledge, abundance, justice, sovereignty, mediation of disputes, confirmation of good things, friendship with great men, great gifts, freedom, deliverance from evils, trusts, and inheritances. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned... You'd mentioned like all the myths about Jupiter or about Zeus, and then like the connection with like one of the first ones is like the begetting of children with Valens, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And okay. Jupiter had Zeus like had so many affairs. He had like just dozens and dozens and dozens of children. And that was perhaps one of the reasons he in Hellenistic astrology is associated with children is because it was incredibly um, for procreatively fertile nature. Mm, okay. Yeah. And, and like prolific. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I'm just going to, um, quickly flash the full translation of the significations, um, from my book of Jupiter and that, yeah, that's literally the very first signification that balance gives the begetting of children and childbirth. Um, and then there's the rest, just for those watching the video version, if you want to glance at it. All right, let's move on to Saturn now. Okay. And um, Saturn was known um, by the Babylonians as Ninurta, N-I-N-U-R-T-A, and Ningirsu by the Sumerians. And he was... Um, lord of agriculture who's called lord of barley he was a god of agriculture and gave advice to farmers and i thought 
that interesting that um, Saturn or Kronos and especially Saturn was connected with agriculture and his symbol was the skith by which he harvested the grain. Um, and so we see that um, and in the Greek mythology, Saturn or Kronos ruled over the golden age at one point in time, which was an age of um, everyone had plenty of food to eat, like crops were abundant and there was no hunger or famine. So we have that um, theme of agricultural abundance and fertility showing up with this planet across cultures. And then in the um, Sumerian, the Babylonian, he was also known as the god of irrigation, which connected with the agricultural fertility. And it was said um, that he took all these stones and moved them about, and he created the Tigris and Euphrates River by harnessing and directing the waters. And then from those two rivers, Mesopotamia is known as the land between the two rivers, the two rivers that come up into the middle of the area. And through all the canals that were likewise built with stones, this is how he brought irrigation to all of the fields and created the agricultural abundance. And there is a story that he got into um, some kind of fight against enemies and all the stones became his allies and came to his assistance. Um, and so I thought that was particularly interesting that we have the um, connection with uh, Saturn and Kronos with uh, rocks and stones and even um, using stones. Stones were used as boundary markers and Saturn's connection with making boundaries. And even in the myth that we'll get to that when um, Saturn's uh, children were born, his wife Rhea, um, when babies, Saturn would eat his children. And when baby Zeus was born, she wrapped up a stone in the swaddling blanket that gave it to him to swallow instead of the baby. Um, so we have a whole motif of the stone theme coming through the myths. And that also in this early uh, time period, he was a god of healing. And it was said that he cured humans from sicknesses by releasing them from demons. And I didn't, what that sparked in my mind was that the 12th house became the house of the evil daimon, where Saturn or Kronos had his joy. And, um, and it was the house of illnesses, chronic illnesses, and also the house of demons. And so I thought that that could be developed into a couple of lines or paragraphs of his connection there. Now, um, We can see a loose correlation there, but what makes the correlation infinitely more interesting 
is if we move to the north of Assyria and get into the eastern part of Asia Minor, we get into the country that in ancient times was ruled by the Hittites and before them a culture called the Hurrians, H-U-R-R-I-A-N-S. And in that mythology, the um, Hurrian deity Kumarbi bit off the genitals of his father and conceived children who were his enemies and he uh, swallowed them. And in Greek mythology, Kronos, who's Saturn, is um, called on by his mother Gaia to adventure against his father Oranus by taking his um, scythe and whacking off the genitals of his father Oranus. Mm -hmm. And so both of these gods are killing their father by castrating him. And then giving birth to children whom they fear will supersede him and they swallow them. Right. Then his um, son, um, Kumarbi's son, Teshub, um gathers together other gods and engages in a struggle um, against their father eventually disposes him and that's exactly what Zeus Jupiter does he liberates all of his swallowed brothers and sisters who come up and join forces to overthrow Kronos or Saturn so between and the Hittites um, cuneiform texts of astrological omens were found in the land of the Hittites in the um, first millennium BC, BCE, so that this culture had um, not only contact with the Assyrians, but contact through the astrology. So we see a development of the myth of Ninurta in Babylonia, Assyria, as a god of agriculture and irrigation, and that flow into the myths of the Hittites um, and the Hurrians as a god who um, castrates his father, um, gives birth to these children who he devours, and the children rise up against him and conquer him. And between those two cultures, we have the replication of the significations of Kronos and Saturn in Greek and Roman mythology. Yeah, that's really good. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a through line then eventually, which is one that explains some of the significations that Valens give that otherwise don't make a ton of sense, but that we see in Valens as echoes of some of that. Um, so let me read. First, yeah. the, the significations that you give um, in your book as part of that comparison. So Valens sig says that Saturn signifies is solitary, 
deceitful, miserable, violent actions, depressions, long-lasting punishments, tears, accusations, concealments, captivity, childlessness, orphanhood, laborers and farmers, authority over the earth, tax and custom collectors, and forced activities. And then I feel badly that somehow the navigation and sea seafaring trades got left out of this list that um, is in the full list. That's okay. I can pull up. Here's yeah. um, the full list from my book with yeah. where I just tried to translate all of these and then footnote all the different possible interpretations of each signification. But um, here it is. It's he says um, Saturn is given to seafaring, practicing waterside trades. So there's this whole like water association with Saturn and waterside trades and seafaring, in addition to the like um, farming and farmers one, where it says Saturn makes farmers and gardeners because he rules the soil. So it's like there's this weird um, continuation where otherwise it's like most of the, the significations that Valens is giving are are very negative for Saturn. And then he th like throws in these sort of curveballs that's like, and farming and waterside trades. Um, but then if you go back to some of those myths, you see this interesting through line between the cultures. And so like, you know, did Philip of Opus like totally know the Hittite Hurrian myths when he like said, oh, I think this planet Ninurta should be connected with uh, the star of Kronos. Like, I don't know, like how intimate his knowledge was of the myths that were connected with the Babylonian gods. But nevertheless, um, when he's, when who, whether it was he or whoever gave the name of the star of Kronos to that planet. But nevertheless, there are those mythic correspondences. Yeah, and one of the other correspondences I was thinking of when you were talking about the succession from, mm -hmm. you know, Uranus being the father originally and then Saturn overthrowing him and then eventually Saturn being overthrown by Jupiter is one of the cute things that Philip of Opus or whoever created that scheme did um, is in the planetary spheres and this is a diagram for those watching the video version that shows more of the the Hellenistic order of the spheres. Oh, yes, before, yeah. But nonetheless, it, with even in Philip and Plato's time period, the last spheres of like Jupiter and Saturn were always the outer ones because those are the slowest of the visible planets. But Philip created this, and it's been commented that there's this order where Philip actually. It's like there's the sphere of Jupiter, and then above that is the sphere of Saturn, and then above that is the sphere of the fixed stars. But what's interesting at one point is that Philip calls, he refers to the sphere of the fixed stars with different names, but at one point he refers to the sphere of the fixed stars as Uranus or Oranos, um, which creates an interesting sequence where it's like Uranus, then Saturn, and then Jupiter. So that that kind of like primordial secret sequence of the different like founders or or fathers who were 
overthrowing each other is perfectly replicated in this in this model or in this order of the planets as the names were assigned to them by Philip and his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And there's something something pretty pretty striking about that. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Okay. All right. Well, um, I would like to take another break and then we can come back and sort of conclude things. Is there anything you want to say now that we're work before we take a break? No. Okay, good. All right, let's take a break. Okay, Okay, so we're back from break. Um, Let's conclude this and and bring this home with um, just a few points that we're going to go through very quickly to wrap things up. Um, so I think Philip of Opus, our conclusion from this, I feel like the mythology did clearly play some role in Philip of Opus or whatever contemporary of his decided to choose certain Greek myths to match with certain earlier Mesopotamian myths. And I feel like that's pretty clear at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Right. There's a good argument that can be made for that. Definitely, if one wanted to argue that position, there is a lot of evidence that can be brought up. Sure. And that doesn't exclude other considerations like astronomical and symbolic considerations. But um, that combined with the fact that Philip himself mentions um, and gives acknowledgement to he said what he calls the Syrians, but it's kind of broadly referring to the Mesopotamians or the Persian culture that was in control of that area of, of quote unquote Syria at that time, to the extent that he's acknowledging that, I think his acknowledgement is not fake. It's not false. It's actually genuine to some extent. Yeah, he indicated that it was. He says the Syrians and the Assyrians gave the names to the planets. Right. So, legislators are, yeah. So on the one hand, we have Philip doing that. We have um, so we have Philip adapting then the Mesopotamian names of the planets and gods to Greek names of the planets. At the same time, his contemporary Eudoxus is supposed to have been one of the people who um, set the Greek names for the signs of the zodiac, because that's the other things that the Greeks were inheriting from the Mesopotamians at this time is the 12 sign zodiac which had only been standardized by the 5th century BCE so by like a century earlier in Mesopotamia the zodiac starts showing up at this time also with its first real mentions in um the contemporaries of Plato and his students um including Aristotle and Eudoxus so Eudoxus though seems to have picked taken the Mesopotamian names for the signs of the zodiac that were used for those constellations and then um, put those names in Greek, basically, in a pretty straightforward manner. Exactly. You had the Babylonian signifying the great twins. Um, you had the Babylonian constellation, the lion. You had the Babylonian constellation, the bull. Um, and there's a list of um, many of them. So his assignment of the Greek names were simply the equivalence of the words for lion, bull, twins, and so on. Right. Even like Capricorn, which is this weird like goat fish in the Mesopotamian tradition becomes like in Greek, the the Greek word means like the goat horned one. Mm -hmm. So that means there was also an adaptation taking place there. 
Um, we have this story, like I said, of um, Plato being visited by a Chaldean or a Mesopotamian sometime late in his life. And that story, some of the scholars have been reading recently, they think that that story comes from Philip of Opus himself um, in terms of the reason why that was preserved. And even aside from that, what um, in subsequent centuries, we know that um, a few decades later, after Alexander the Great took an army of Greeks and Macedonians out of Greece and stormed through and took over most of the Middle East and Persia and Mesopotamia and Egypt, um, we know that after that point in the subsequent centuries, there became uh, a lot more interaction and traveling and immigration between Greek and Mesopotamian cultures, which then sped up even further the spread of Mesopotamian and Egyptian astrology and the merging with Greek culture and thought in the Hellenistic era. Um, that wasn't like all that immigration and interaction between cultures did not just start at that point. It just accelerated at that point. But there was already interactions going on between Egypt and Mesopotamia and Greece in this period around the time of Plato's Academy and his successors. Yes, definitely. Okay. During the rule of the Persians who had conquered the Assyrians, um, there was that Persian influence in Egypt when they extended their rule going into Egypt. And those were, was a time when some of the earliest eclipse omens material came into Egypt from Persia during the reigns of Ashurbanipal um, and Esarhaddon. And then the second time with, Dar with Darius, um, the Persians had also made incursions into Greece with Xerxes. And there was a, a whole delegation of Persians who occupied um, in Thessaly who were welcomed as allies for a period of a year. And so there were places where the Persian culture had had significant interactions with both Greece and Egypt from an right. earlier time period, yeah. Right, for sure. Um, okay, so, and then finally, um, Philip of Opus, uh, Proclus makes a reference to him at one point, a later philosopher, Proclus, and he said that Philip was a disciple of Plato and induced by Plato to study mathematics conducting researches at Plato's suggestions and set himself the task of giving completeness to Plato's philosophy. And when you read the Epinomis, there's something about it where we've been talking about the planetary assignments, but there was a broader program in the Epinomis where um, Philip introduces the idea of the heavenly bodies, the sun and moon and planets as gods or as divine beings that also have souls and an intellect, as well as the notion of the cosmos itself as being a god and being alive and intelligent and having a soul as well. Um, and Philip, to some extent, may have thought he was carrying on certain things from late in Plato's life and work and bringing some of that work to completion and then Philip's work itself set up a new paradigm that would be carried forward at that point. Um, so one of the quotes I wanted to read 
is a quote from um, an article I was reading by John Dillon and a scholar named John Dillon who's talking about Philip of Opus. So he says, it seems clear enough that for Philip and in his mind for his master Plato as well, certainly in the laws, but perhaps going back as far as the Republic and the Timaeus, that the supreme principle in the universe was a rational world soul, eminent in the cosmos and residing most particularly in the sphere of the fixed stars. The study of astronomy is therefore the contemplation of the structure and workings of God's mind. It is this that teaches us the wonders of number, and it is that in turn which allows us, which endows us with wisdom, phronesis. So this is from article by John Dillon, um, titled The World Soul Takes Command. Um, and I thought that was really important because it sets up a paradigm where in looking at the cosmos and contemplating the cosmos and the movement of the planets that you're literally looking at in some ways the structure and working of God's mind to the extent that God is the cosmos itself and is alive with wisdom and reason. And even if Philip himself wasn't taking that in an explicitly philosophical or astrological direction, we can see how later astrologers would have done so potentially or could have done so. That's what we were alluding to before that the pre-Socratic and classical philosophers had laid a philosophic foundation into place that would allow for the um, study of astrology once it started coming in full force after Alexander's conquests. Right, for sure. So we can do this like, you know, what Plato said, like allows us to go there. If they were thinking in that way, they would have found a permission, a philosophical justification, a permission uh, um, for them to continue their studies in that direction. Right, for sure. Um, and then some of that feeds into the Stoic tradition where it was passed on. So one of the realizations that I had actually just this morning as I was doing my last minute preparation is that then eventually at the beginning of the Hellenistic tradition, which um, most scholars think was developed sometime around the second century BCE with a collection of early foundational texts attributed to mythical or legendary figures like Hermes Trismegistus or Asclepius or Nechepso and Pedasiris, that there were these set of early manuals that introduced some of the basic conceptual structure and conceptual construct of astrology that all subsequent astrologers have used, um, and that a lot of this was based around conceptual models such as the Thema Mundi, um, which was said to be the mythical birth chart for the birth of the cosmos. And one of the things I realized today is that the Thema Mundi and things surrounding it um, was probably originally presented as a conceptual structure, a construct, but it was also probably presented in the form of a myth in the same way and following the same tradition as Plato introducing these myths in order to explain um, basic philosophical or important philosophical principles as well as the structure of the cosmos and other things like that. Um, so I wrote, in the same tradition of Plato's myths in the Timaeus and Republic, the Thema Mundi potentially could have been a myth about the birth of God and the cosmos, 
which also incidentally explains the allotment of the celestial gods and how they received their apportionment, just as they in turn will then act as a celestial council that will render verdicts about the fate of each individual life and what the outcome will be of the choice of birth that they selected, um, the choice of incarnating at that moment, which then necessarily results in certain outcomes due to the conditional nature of fate as a law, which is a concept from Plato. So one of my points here is I just think that um, what I'm finding and what we're starting to uncover and learn is that Platonism may have had a much larger impact on Hellenistic astrology than it might seem at first, especially because we're so look at, used to looking at the surviving source texts, which are mainly later from the first and second century and are um, um, influenced by Stoic ethics. But at some earlier stage, we have to understand that some of these earlier Hellenistic constructs would have been very much um, influenced and drawn on, or at least aware of, conceptual ideas or or philosophical texts like Plato and the myth of the Timaeus and um, the Republic and the myth of Ur, as well as other Platonic dialogues and ideas. And especially with Philip taking that next step in the Epinomis, um, that really starts pushing it in a direction that starts looking much more clear of what we know about Hellenistic astrology. And there's something really important about that that I'm still working out, but it seems like we're we're getting somewhere really interesting at this point in terms of a connection between Plato's Academy and the eventual development of Hellenistic astrology. Right. I mean, this is the notion that the um, early formulators of Hellenistic astrology had some training in Greek philosophy, certainly has been um, discussed since, you know, the early days of uh, the translation of the text. And we could go into the establishment of the city of Alexandria and the Alexandrian library and museum that was not a collector's haven, but a think tank for Greek philosophers. And so there was a culture, a milieu of um, persons of knowledge um, being familiar with the philosophical ideas of the time that were also involved in the formulation of astrological principles. And of course, to that, you can't rule out the um, participation of the Egyptian priesthood either. And um, one of the uh, Ptolemy kings, Ptolemy VIII, was in particular a lover of um, all things Egyptian. And when he came to rule, he gave um, a lot of money for the rebuilding of the Egyptian temples and opening up Alexandria, the museum for um, Egyptian priests to participate in the study so that there was a whole Greco-Egyptian intelligentsia 
that had training in Greek philosophy. Um, so your notion that the philosophy of Plato and of Platonism would have been influential um, is something that Will Schmidt talked about, but it's definitely we're coming to the place of seeing establishing more of the connectors with that notion. Yeah, when we also see that clearly in like the Hermetic philosophical text, the so-called um, philosophical Hermetica, like the very first one of the Corpus Hermeticum, the Poimandries, which all the scholars agree shares all these influences of Platonism and Stoicism and um, uh, also native Egyptian philosophical and religious concepts at the same time that's been blended together so that there's already evidence of that there. But one of the points is that it's also in the astrological text themselves or the technical Hermetica. And while I don't think I agree with Schmidt's conclusion about who the founder of Hellenistic astrology was and don't necessarily want to get into that now, I'm at least much more open to and I'm seeing the influence of the Platonic tradition um, much earlier and having the realization that they started becoming much more aware of astrology and that it started being discussed in Greek culture that early, I think um, creates a much more long timeline for the development of Hellenistic astrology than maybe was fully acknowledged before, since the evidence doesn't start to show up until like the first, like the second or first century BCE. So, and the last point is just that um, there were also Chaldean astrologers that started traveling to to Greece and, and settling there. Um, I saw this quote from Alexander Jones that he gave in a lecture recently. It was a lecture you can see on YouTube titled, Trying Out the Babylonian Numbers, Transformations of Mesopotamian Astral Science in the Medi Mediterranean World. And this is from an inscription he said that was found at Larissa from the second century BCE. And it says, quote, it's in Greek, um, so the the Greek city of Larissa, it says, since Antipatros, son of Antropatos of Hierapolis in Seleucus, who has been granted citizenship in Hamaleon, being a Chaldeos astronomos, a Chaldean astronomer or Chaldean astrologer potentially, who has lived in our city for a long time, and during his time of dwelling here has shown himself worthy of our city and of his homeland, and he has freely bestowed the knowledge, the mythesis, which also means science, in which he participates. Um, but then the text, of course, breaks off. But basically, it's a Greek inscription from the second century BCE, where this Greek city is like acknowledging and thanking this Chaldean astronomer and astrologer who has come to their city and has shared his science and his knowledge of Chaldean astronomy and astrology with them. And while that's from the second century BCE, it's just evidence of probably something that was happening much more widely, probably even going back to Plato's time where we have that story of a Chaldean visiting, visiting him late in his life um, in terms of these interactions between Greek and Mesopotamian and Egyptian culture. And then the cultural synthesis eventually producing Hellenistic astrology at some point over the next few centuries. Right. So there are many places where, you know, 
Barosis from Babylonia going into Greece and opening up the School of Astrology on Kos. We have a number of Chaldean astrologers that were astrologers to kings on the coast of Asia Minor. Um, we have records of Chaldeans coming into Rome, Chaldean astrologers coming into Rome. is in as early as like 139 BC, there was some legislation against them. So there is like a whole, um, what's the word? It's not um, presence of the Mesopotamian astrological tradition coming into the lands occupied by the Greeks and Romans during the early centuries BC. Right. Yeah. All right. And mythology, though, is one of the sources of the transmission of that knowledge. And it's one that shouldn't be overlooked and, and is still important and relevant to this day. And I think that's the final sort of piece, yeah. I think, to leave people on that you really emphasize. Yeah. And I think we, we had this brief discussion last night that we're not clear if the um, Babylonians thought the planets were their gods per se, or simply the vehicles through which their gods communicated to them. In the assignment of the um, planets by uh, Plato and Philip, they um, in the Greek in the Greek astrology, they call it the star of Hermes or the star of Aphrodite, and so. They aren't exactly saying that the planets are the gods, but that what um, the planets represent are under the umbrella of the spheres of influence of the gods. And that there is this very tenuous, um, shaky position around putting total divinity into the planets themselves is conflicting not only with traditional Greek religion and the worship of the Olympian gods, for which Socrates, you know, got in trouble with for teaching about the new gods who may have well been um, the planets, but that astrology encountered as well um, in the shift toward Christianity of the pagan gods coming into conflict with uh, one god. And we even see when the emperors were setting themselves up as gods themselves, the astrologers were cautious not to want to get into battles over the planets being divinities um, so that they wouldn't incur, incur the wrath of the emperors. So there's this very careful treading in all of the cultures between, on one hand, the acknowledgement of the divinity of the gods and yet not being able to go as far as wanting to say that the planets themselves are the gods. And you can see the tension that exists throughout the entire tradition that, of course, is part and parcel of the mythology being the stories of the gods and how that links with how closely they want to be identified with the planets. Yeah, that's great. And then to bring things full circle, um, you know, myth just means story and myths are connected with religion and religious belief, but they're also attempts to explain the natural world. And myths can also address how the cosmos is organized and how humans are supposed to act in terms of ethics, 
which creates a lot of overlap with both the philosophers as well as the ancient natural scientists. Um, some later thinkers would attempt to rationalize myths or treat them as allegories that had deeper meanings. And part of what Plato did with his dialogues, especially his later ones, is he tr started creating his own myths, like the Timaeus and the myth of Ur, are new myths that incorporate older themes and figures, such as the three fates, the Moirai, but they apply them in a way that's consistent with Plato's philosophical paradigm and beliefs, which includes scientific speculations on astronomy and mathematics. And I think, I believe that this is what the Hellenistic astrologers and the founders of Hellenistic astrology did, eventually did themselves in continuing that tradition from Plato. Um, and even to this day, um, Lisa Shine pointed out to me recently that we have current stories that we tell ourselves that explain the universe, like the Big Bang, which is like a scientific theory, but it's just like our current best understanding of the universe, but it's also wrapped up in larger stories or narratives about how our cosmos began and where we came from. So we continue to make myths and tell stories today, and some of those might be up for revisions at different points in the future, but those stories are important to us culturally, both scientifically and religiously, just as they were to the ancients. All right, I think that's a good stopping point. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining me for this. This is amazing. This is a really intense period of research for both of us. I'm super glad we did this. Thank you so much for, for doing this with me. It felt really important. Right, it's always like wonderful to be able to collaborate with you. It's very exciting. Um, moments in the ongoing um, studies that we're both involved with. Yeah, same here. It's one of my favorite things that I feel the most fortunate about in my life. Um, okay, you have an event coming up that I wanted to mention where you're actually doing a retreat on the Hellenistic Time Lord techniques that's coming up later this year, right? Yes, it will be a five-day event. It'll take place in mid-June. You have the dates were June 13th through 17th. Is that what you had? Yes, correct. Yeah. June 13th through 17th, 2024 in Longmont, Colorado. Right. And um, uh, I had been asked by some students to repeat the uh, teaching. So I am. It'll be sponsored through Astrology University. It'll be an in-person retreat. And I'll be... Um, uh, teaching planetary periods and essential times of the signs, circumambulations or directions through the bounds, zodiacal releasing from the lots of fortune and spirit, um, annual perfections and the Hellenistic solar return. And by the fifth day, I'd like to touch upon Ptolemy's seven ages of man and give um, the instructions and procedures for how to do these techniques of where you can get the um, calculations um, to uh, start incorporating them into your practice if you want. There is a workbook that we'll be printing up and that there will be um, time not only for morning lectures, but also small group work, um, presentations, time to work on your own chart question and answer periods and reading from the text themselves of the sections that we've been working on. So um, it'll be, uh, jokingly, the word intensive should really be substituted for retreat, but it will promises to be um, 
a very exciting immersion experience. So you can um, just put in Hellenistic Time Lords Retreat, my name, Dimitra George, in your search engine, and you'll get to the link where you can find out more information and register. Yeah, and I'll put a link to the registration page, which is at astrologyuniversity.com. I'll put a link to it in the description below this video or on the podcast website in the description for this um, episode so people can go there directly if they want as well. Um, but otherwise, that sounds like an awesome event. So uh, yeah, I have a great time with it. And I look forward to, I'll see you here in Colorado then when you visit. We can definitely make a flight to connect then. Yeah. All right, cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I appreciate it. Goodbye, everyone. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and I'll see you again next time. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the forecast each month, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Chani app, the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. You can download it on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, or for more information, visit app.chani.com. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, Melissa Delano, and Sunny Bosbaz. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. 
You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine, which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net.